My name is Era, and I'm the host of the Tamil Creator Podcast. I chat with creators from all over the world to share their stories and discuss hot topics in a way that I hope inspires, educates, and entertains you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Tamil Creator. This is your host. And today I have not only one guest, but I have two, which is unusual for me. Um, <clears throat> the two guests that I have on today are Manjula Savaraja and Kirtana Sasitharan. Um, so Manjula, a lot of you might know her. She's well-known in the Tamil community. Um, we had a conversation just before this where she was trying to downplay her accomplishments and we're not going to let her do that. So Manjula is a Toronto-based journalist, technology and education columnist with segments airing for CBC stations nationally and a guest host on CBC's Ontario shows. She's also a frequent MC and moderator with repeat speaking appearances at Elevate, Collision, and Hashtag Move the Dial. In her former life, she was a VP of marketing at a startup called Eloqua, uh, which went on to do really well in terms of an exit. And she's also the co-founder of Tamil Women Rising and co-creator of the Boldly Asian series on CBC. Kirtana Sasitharan is a CBC news reporter and associate producer, and also a Manjula's fellow co-creator on the Boldly Asian series on CBC. Her previous experiences include News Network, Marketplace, and Business in Vancouver. She's also worked as a reporter in Hamilton, Kitchener-Waterloo, Thunder Bay, and Sudbury. Welcome to the show, guys. Hey, thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. I hope today's experiment with two guests goes well, but I think you guys will do awesome. So uh, <laughs> I want to thank you guys for jumping on. Um, for me, I'm always a fan of starting at the beginning. I think I tell every guest, I think every, not everything, but like a lot of the choices you make as adults, uh, whether you unconsciously or unconsciously are aware of it, uh, are driven by things that you were exposed to at the beginnings when you're younger. So let's start at the beginning for both of you and either one you can go first, but tell us about your family, your upbringing, and uh, how that played a part in your decision to eventually become journalists and create the series called the Boldly Asian Series. Kirtan, I'm going to point to you. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't think I've even ever, I've even ever heard you talk about this. So I'm keen yeah, to hear. Uh, well, I uh, immigrated uh, to Canada from Sri Lanka, which I'll be honest, is something actually people find shocking. I don't know why, but maybe the crowd I work in here, always like, oh, you don't have an accent. I was like, oh my God, immigration doesn't equal accent, but <laughs> okay. Um, and, but, and it was, I, I came here when I was like eight months old, I was a baby. And they're like, you came here eight months ago? Wow. I was like, wow, we were, there's a really big loss of hearing here. Um, but uh, yeah, I came to Canada. I kind of had your typical Tamil, uh, Tamil livelihood, uh, just with a twist, I would say like, you know, you had your dosas and produce, but at the same time, my brother was into hockey and soccer and we played like piano and dance. And, and, and so my parents tried to kind of tread the waters between living a very Canadian life and living a very um, Western adapted life. Uh, what's kind of interesting is I actually started in the performing arts. I started in music and theater, um, but I really had a strong interest in politics, geography, all of those things. Um, so I went to high school for, for theater. Uh, when it came time to actually go to journalism school, I, was in, I remember being in my guidance counselor's office and I had four choices. And I remember I called my mom and I said, oh, I, I love journalism. She's like, you are never allowed to be a journalist. And I was like, what? She's like, they will send you to a country and you will die. 
of like that what but her was that was her very immediate reaction and you know for so long I didn't understand it but I understand where my mother grew up like obviously she grew up in a country where journalists were um you know they, they, they died because they were journalists and she had a just total fear that was not a great she said do anything except that um I I went in to do English literature but I I love journalism I just I love journalism I love getting to the bottom of a story. I love accountability. I think accountability is very important. I love political science. I love asking questions. I'm a very curious person. So none of these things were satisfied with an undergraduate degree. Um, by my fourth year, I had the opportunity to um, actually do my master's in journalism. So I went out to UBC. I got a full scholarship at UBC uh, and I did my master's. Uh, that actually, you know, at that point, I think my parents couldn't say anything. Like, when you get a full ride in your education, like your parents are going to be like, oh, well, I'm not paying for it. Like go wherever you want. So ultimately that's what happened. Like I got a full ride. My dad and my mom dropped me off in Vancouver, very like angrily, but they're like, oh, well, we don't have to pay for it. So, uh, but it was really just, it, I was in my element. I was telling stories. I, I had a way to channel anger. I feel like sometimes we see injustices in this world and we just kind of feel like we can't do anything about it. I think that, Sits, on, sits with us very heavily. Um, I had this great opportunity here to just tell these stories. I had a great opportunity to, to be that voice in the middle where I just didn't want to sit still. I wanted to tell that story. I wanted to kind of open up that avenue. So then I started pursuing um, journalism at, at, during my master's and I graduated and eventually found a job. So that's kind of my transition to towards this field. And just before Manjula jumps in, I, it's really interesting you kind of brought up how you didn't get that, like why your mom was so against you being a journalist. Because I had a conversation with Suresh Das, um, who um, he was talking about an interesting theory he had about why there was no um, sit-down restaurants that were Tamil, Sri Lankan in Toronto at the beginning. And he said, this theory was talking to his parents was um, in Sri Lanka, like right at, like in the middle of the war, like it was never safe to sit down and kind of enjoy a meal because you know, there could be like a, you know, a bombing or just like a military attack. So it was always takeout. And then subconsciously, people brought that thinking here and there was never any sit down restaurants until the second generation started doing it. So it's just really interesting how these patterns or things that are ingrained in you, you don't realize where you pick them up and then kind of, you just manifest in like really unexpected places. So anyway, it's just like a, like a random thought, but I'll let Manjula jump in and share her story. Oh, I, you know, it's, it's hard for me to, to figure out which story to tell simply because my career has had all sorts of little twists, right? Um, I would have to say that, that I'm going to first, first talk about engineering, um, because I do have a love of science engineering and technology. And, and for me, um, you know, where that moment started was one day in electronics class, um, I used to, we moved from Sri Lanka to Nigeria when, when we were very young. And I, then I moved from Nigeria uh, after traveling back and forth to Sri Lanka and between Sri Lanka and Nigeria, I moved from uh, Nigeria to Canada when I was 15. But there was one particular year in a Nigerian, in a class in Nigeria, electronics class, no one had a clue what this teacher was drawing. They were apparently drawing some kind of a mortar on the board. No one understood it. So I came home and I told my dad, I said, I, you know, this is a mortar. I have no clue. I have to memorize this. The entire class is struggling with it. And what he did is he actually took a bunch of little parts around the house and he's an accountant. 
he's not an engineer or a scientist and he actually built a little motor. And I saw, I remember the point where he connected the two wires and the thing in the middle started moving. I was blown away. It's so vivid that I still remember, remember that. And I finally got it. I was like, that's what this teacher is trying to draw. So I went back to class and I explained it to a couple of my classmates. And then I would come home, he would build the next thing. And I became the go-to person in electronics <laughs> class. I was, people were like, you don't get it, go to Manjula. Like I aced that class. And I think that gave me a certain amount of confidence to then think, well, this could be a possibility. I started getting more serious in math, more serious at physics. And that's where it started. And I've always been fascinated. Like I even remember the first time I learned how planes fly and being completely mesmerized by the idea that you could use deferring air pressures to move something up. So went on to uh, to get uh, went on to get an engineering degree from engineering degree at Queens a University in Kingston and from there um, moved on to work um, for a technology company from there uh, a startup which I did for several years <laughs> very sleepless nights and I would say um, I have had two phenomenal job experiences in my life. Journalism is one of them. I'll get to that in a minute. Working at that startup was the other. It really, I learned so much. The first thing, primary thing that I learned is that I'm not so great, right? That's the first thing that a, a startup teaches you is, is just teaches you to be really humble about knowing what you're good at and knowing what you're terrible at and focusing on the good stuff. Right after I'd been at the at the startup for a couple of years, we were doing okay. We hadn't really sort of caught that wave to ramp up and, and become a, a bigger player. But, you know, we were making some money. Team was growing. I think we were at about 250 people at that point. Um, I was uh, managing uh, their marketing team. And I took some time off uh, to have a, uh, a child. And I'll be very frank because I've spoken about this frankly before. Uh, we were having fertility issues. And my stress certainly and the sleepless nights probably and long days probably didn't help. Um, of course, that must have made a difference because one year later I, I did have a child. And in the time that I was pregnant, just so that I could, I needed to put all that energy somewhere, I started helping uh, nonprofits in the Tamil community around sort of any sort of issues. If anyone wanted a press release written, if you wanted, I don't know, something, you want a couple of media calls done, any kind of marketing done, just get in touch with me, got involved with one organization. And one day um, when there was a, a, you know, a group, a very large group of migrants um, that appeared on a boat off the, the coast of BC, I was called upon to kind of do press releases. And that blossomed into something like 40 interviews over five days with journalists. I met a whole bunch of journalists. We went from the story being, who are these terrorists that are on the boat to journalists really spending the time to understand who these people were and going, well, we don't know who they are, but we're going to give them the benefit of the, of the doubt. And I really learned to respect these people who knew, you know, some of them didn't know a lot about Sri Lanka, didn't know anything about what was happening in Sri Lanka with, with the conflict, but very quickly understood the issue and managed to, to produce 
great work in that time. And I think it was in one of those days, uh, was, there was a particular journalist, I think from CP24, who said, have you ever considered becoming a journalist? I said, I don't think so, but I think you've just converted me. And that was <laughs> it. That was the journey for me. And, you know, I, I, um, I think that's why Kirtan and I, and I really get along as well. And I think a bunch of our pe the people in our newsroom really get along because at the core of what we want to do, it's really try to be that person that tells that story. And when it feels magical is when it's a story that usually doesn't get told. And when you are, when you come from an underrepresented community, there's a chance that you get to tell more of those stories because you might be one of the few links that people have to media outlets. So in, in a very, very long way, that's how I went through my first career to now my second career, which again, I said, I am blessed to have a, a second place that I've um, ended up in that I love. That's great. I, I don't think I've heard that version of the story. I, I think a couple of funny stories about, not funny, but I guess interesting stories is, I think I met you around that time because speaking of like failures, I'd done my first startup, which failed miserably, but I think I just met you at this event. I approached you because I think you were speaking. I was amazed at like how uh, well of a speaker, how well you spoke. And I think you invited me to some like fundraiser. I showed up and I won like the $200, I think cash prize and I donated it. People were like upset at me for like donating it because I set the precedent for anybody who wins this money moving forward must donate it. So I remember that story. Um, the second thing is, it's like something about the two degrees of separation, the Talmud community versus like the six, because you went from, uh, you went, you moved to Nigeria and like, like, like who else could I possibly know? But like my really dear, like close friend of mine, Kamuta, she's like, she like has known you since like she was a baby and also Shanti Omkar as well. And I was like, that's so crazy that like, I don't know, like people that I didn't think would know each other, like live together and spent this time together, not in Sri Lanka or not in like Toronto. So this is interesting. Well, here's the interesting, Kirtana, you'd love this. So uh, <clears throat> the part of Nigeria that we lived in had a very, very tiny Tamil community. I would say maybe 30 families, 30, maybe 40 in the whole state, which is a massive area, right? Out of that Tamil community have emerged three journalists, uh, Kumuda used to work for Bloomberg in in um, in London, and I and you know still does a lot of tremendous uh, journalism work. Um, Ashanti works for the BBC, and I work for the CBC. And once in a while, we talk about what was in the water in my degree <laughs> Borno State in Nigeria because it just it makes like I have you know and and considering that all of us heard that language around. Most of us, or I would, I think I can say Kumuda and, and Ashanti probably did too, heard that language around don't be a journalist. Isn't that shocking that out of those 40 families, three uh, journalists emerged? Anyways, it's kind of a neat little story. It's <laughs> also amazing that I guess um, the, that like the, the boats docking in um, BC at that time were kind of part of the spark for you. Um, there's a, I mean, I think you guys both know the, the great book, Sharon Baller wrote around boat people inspired by that. Um, so just like an interesting thing as well, but I want to jump into now, you know, you guys have talked about your journey and you guys are both at CBC. So how did you guys meet? Like, I know I should, shouldn't be foolish and be like, okay, there's two Tamil women that happen to work at CBC. They're going to find each other, but how did you guys find each other? And then how did that spark this idea of 
told the agent once you guys did connect with each other? Well, you wouldn't be wrong. There's two Tamil <laughs> people at CBC, and then you just were like, oh my God, that name looks like mine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Salvaraja and Sophie Bevan are pretty <laughs> hard to miss, okay? You just count the syllables. Um, but uh, actually, I think what had happened was when I joined CBC, we were working on an investigation that Manjula had actually pitched to our newsroom around. Um, uh, around a temple that was uh, withholding um, wages for uh, artists, uh, the, the Gobram artists. And so she had pitched that to our newsroom and we'd got in touch. And then I was doing translation work for the story because all the people in the story spoke Tamil. So I would watch the Tamil interviews and translate them in English. Um, and so I remember that time, Angela had messaged me and sent me an email. It's like, oh, hey, like I hear there's someone helping with this, like we should meet up. And then we didn't meet up because I think I started roping, like I started doing um, traveling Ontario as a reporter. I started going to, I was living in like different cities. Uh, and then I'd come back periodically to Toronto in between uh, my contracts in different cities. Uh, and I think we started really touching base when Manjula would host and I would be news reading uh, our morning shows. That's where we really started uh, developing a really beautiful friendship. And, and we, she was also hosting one of our, our uh, weekend shows and I got to, uh, and I would be news reading. And so we would always um, kind of touch base through that sort of communication. Um, and so I think our brains just work the same way. I, it's funny if you ever, not that anyone's invited to this circle, but whatever Manjula and I just chat, we're like, okay, we're gonna like have a meeting today. Meeting starts at nine. Like our conversation <laughs> about the topic starts at nine forty-five. From nine to nine forty-five, it's like venting. It's like, what did your mom give you to eat? I was like, I ate this. And then it's like, these are all the injustices in the world. This is what we need to solve. Uh, oh my god, I forgot to do laundry. Like, and, I, and then it's like nine forty-five. So coldly Asian. And then I was like, forty-five minutes. Well, don't tell the CBC, but we spent a lot of time chatting. But I think that is, I think like with friendships, I think it's something, it's hard. I think when, when you're working on a series like this, something as vulnerable and something as powerful as this conversation, you need to be, you need to really understand the people that you're working with and you need to really be friends. You need to, you need to understand each other's languages. And I think Manjul always did that for me. And I hope I always did that for her as well. Um, and I, she was a soundboard. She was a friend. We, we were angry at the same things. We were, <laughs> excited by the same things I, I and it and it, we lit like we kind of vibe that way um so what happened was one day during the pandemic we were both working on our morning show and if for anyone listening go, the morning show starts at three o'clock you wake up at three o'clock in the morning you're drinking a coffee you're coming into work I'm I'm news reading trying to see what, what are what's breaking news blah 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 by the time the shows are over you're coming out of it around 11 o'clock I think Manjula and I met each other at the elevators and it was like, oh my God, this day is done. But it really just started to spark this conversation around, um, like, I love what we do. I love the opportunity that we do. What can we do that contributes to the narrative around journalism? What do we see missing? I mean, you gotta remember like these are two Tamil women sitting in a room hosting and news reading, uh, you know, a huge, to a huge audience like this is pretty unprecedented you don't really get this it's especially unfortunately in today's day and age we're still among the minority of on-air media so what sort what can we leave like what can we do to change the narrative 
So we started to think about Asian Heritage Month. Um, you know, every time Asian Heritage Month goes around, tell me how many press conferences come up, how many posts go on Instagram and Twitter. We wanted to switch that narrative. We thought it was so valuable to change how we view Asian Heritage Month. Um, and I think that's really what sparked Boldly Asian. And I'm, I want Manjula to talk a little bit more about what Boldly Asian is for people who don't know, but it really came out of a conversation that we both had about what's missing in the current journalistic narrative that has to be told to get people to understand Asian communities a little bit better. Manjula, do you want to take a crack at it? Sure, sure. Um, oh gosh, yeah, you know, I have to say, um, it's funny to hear you say that your day's over at 11 a.m., but you're so right <laughs> that the day would be. And some some days that Kirtana and I would be coming in, there would be people still partying from the night before going home. That's that's, you know, tough to watch, too. But I have to say with with um, the nice part about Boli Asian was that that it was something that 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 we're really grateful that uh, the people at CBC decided our management at CBC decided to let us run with and to support. Um, it was a series, it was multi-platform. So there was TV, uh, radio pieces, uh, digital pieces. And then it ended up that there ended up being pieces that went across the country as well. And the idea was we had these people, incredible people that we kept and stories we kept uh, coming across in the community who were um, who were change makers, but what they were trying to do is change um, the perception of something within the community and beyond. Uh, the best way to explain that would be, um, I think that that you've interviewed Mathusha um, Senthal, the founder of Thanepot, right? The founders of uh, the founder of Thanepot, and you know what she was trying to do is is get people talking openly and addressing the the idea of sexual health sex and and sex education openly in the community so she's a change maker within the community then within the south asian community which is the next level of onion skin and beyond right so um so she would be an example of it the another example of someone who would be a change maker was this organization we we um we profiled uh, organize, LGBTQ organization in the East Asian community based out of Toronto. And they had a program uh, called, um, Kitana, correct me if I'm wrong, it's called When You're Ready, right? Is that right? Yeah, When You're yeah, Ready. Yeah, when you're ready. And the idea is that if you are a young person under the age of 30, East Asian, even younger than that, it ended up being, who is, you know, you may realize that you fall into that definition, but maybe your family doesn't accept you. Maybe you don't know what to do next. You don't even know how to think about it. Should you come out? Should you not? Will you be, you know, um, sort of left out of the community? What's going to happen? This is a safe, confidential space for you to come through a series of workshops and a, and a little group that you can belong to that get you talking about what could happen. What are the finances you have to think about? You know, um, what are the different aspects in your life that you have to, do you even want to do it? You don't have to do it, all of those things. And imagine that, imagine being someone who's LGBTQ in the community, um, 
if you're worried that you're going to be left out of the community, even perhaps by your own parents and having the space to talk about that openly, that's what they were running. So again, an organization that was making change within their community and beyond. And how we know it was beyond is we thought, well, this is kind of cool. Here's a change makers within communities and beyond. And we have, you know, we had something like 15 stories. We picked the five best ones we could go with. And I think if Kirithana, correct me if I'm wrong, it was like a minute after we started pitching it that someone in the room went, I love it. Someone with decision-making power said, I love it. I think we want to go with this. And I think that I love it was, it, what was crazy about that I love it was how soon it came too much. Yeah. Like, and I think it was funny because um, I've worked at CBC for so long and I never really realized that it's because they probably haven't seen this. Like they they were just amazed by the concept. Like who comes in, two Tamil women, two Asian women come in to a room to pitch a story. Like, okay, that in and of alone is like, okay, that's unique. And then here's a concept that they wouldn't have come up on, on their own. You gotta remember journalism is very fast paced. The industry is fast paced. Sometimes the time it takes to develop ideas like this, think like this can come from people who have lived experience or people who have, ideas where that have been nurtured and talked about, which Manjula and I definitely had the opportunity to do with both the Asian. That was all of our Saturday morning chats. I spent more Saturday mornings with you than my partner. <laughs> so it's been, it was lovely. It was great. But thing, I think the, the idea is, is to a certain extent, I think, um, you know, Arab, this is why we need journalists from different communities um, in mainstream media, because because I, you know, I don't think, I mean, eventually maybe a couple of years from now or maybe a year from now, these stories may, may have made their way into, into media, but I'm not so sure, right? But, but the interesting part about it is take one of those st stories, um, uh, a group called Burnt Out Daughters, fabulous group um, for young women who felt like they, you know, are feeling the pressures from every side about work, about family, about marriage, about everything. And they get together and they, and they call themselves burnt out daughters and they have these great um, discussions. And I remember when we, when we pitched this, I felt like all of the women in the room, despite their shape, size, or color were like, yes, I think I'm a burnt out daughter too. And that was one of the stories that, that, ended up going um, national. Um, one of our very popular talk show programs, Ontario Today, actually devoted a talk show to it, brought the two founders of the group, because you understand, even though that organization is making change within the South Asian community, Burnt Out Daughters, any woman in any part of Ontario or Canada probably feels that pressure during the pandemic. So it really resonates. So I think I would have to say, you know, my lessons coming out of this is a kind of sort of three things, right? First of all, cultiv cultivate smart, savvy uh, work friends that you can trust, right? Because not, and, and, and the reason that they're smart is that they elevate your game, which is what Kirtana does for me, right? Completely elevates my game. Um, and I trust her. I can talk to her about the good stuff, the bad stuff, and the fresh ideas. So certainly cultivate work friends. Second thing I would say is take your moonshots, right? Don't think you, can, you can't walk into that room and suggest a big idea and gather up the rejections, 
Like you should, if you, you know, at, at some point in your life, I heard this from someone this morning, you should have 50 rejections. If you don't, then how could you possibly have landed a moonshot, right? So Keith and I and I didn't think we would go in and it would land. It was just another pitch for us. We worked a lot on it. We spoke for about two months before we went into that room. But even after we got the yes, we got off the phone and went, was that a yes? Are you sure? I don't know. Maybe we should send an email was our exchange because we were used to hearing no's and that's okay. So, you know, get used to rejection. And I think that the, the third thing that, that you should think about is how your experience influences the work that you do, right? So, you know, uh, and that was the case for us. We decided that we had all of this knowledge that maybe was unique to the workplace we were in. So we decided to bring it to the workplace. So we bought new audiences, we bought new energy, and, and we managed to give these topics some coverage, which is a win for, it's like a win, win, win really, right? So those are kind of the three things I would say that I'm sure Kithana has something to add to that, but those are the three big things that I, that I certainly learned from it. I just wanted to add one quick thing was how amazing that I think I really started to see response to our series when people there was like we had published a story and then there was a conversation that came out of that there was a criticism so I did a story on interracial marriages and out of that story there was criticism like why does you know why is it only that interracial marriages with white people are portrayed what about interracial mar-? and I was like wow like here's a conversation that you know our story happened to feature uh, people, uh, people, uh, Asian people who were in relationships with white people. But here's another conversation to have. Here's a whole other ball game: interracial marriage with communities that are non-white. Like, and so I, I started engaging in this dialogue with people on Twitter, and that really solidified to me that we were making a difference. Here was the representation, and someone just craved more of it, and uh, that really gave me a push. Uh, to be like, okay, we're on the right track. We're doing the right kind of journalism. This is attracting a different kind of audience. This is this is getting people to stick because I knew that person who was commenting had already read a bunch of our stories because so they were sharing them around. But now they're invested. Um, and I loved seeing that reaction. This episode is sponsored by Nobody. That's right, Nobody. So if you could be kind enough to hit that subscribe button, that would mean a lot to me. You kind of did the segue for me because I, I was thinking about when you're a creator, feedback is an important part of that creation process, right? Like you put something out there, you want to know it's doing what you intended it to do. So, but before I do that, this is more of a quick comment, but as I think Manjula was talking about, or like both of you were talking about the rejection process, it almost feels like if you want to be a journalist, a good first job or a job when you're young would be like door-to-door sales or like some kind of sales job where... Uh, yes. I, I did sales when I was younger and I still do it, but like, I was really bad at, like, there's a lot of nuances to sales, but I feel like the one thing I got out of it is when someone rejects you or just says no, it's like, it's not the end of the world where like, when you haven't experienced it before, you're like, oh, they said no. And like, like, what am I going to do now? So it's, it seems like that's like something I'm storing away in my head. If uh, There's a future journalist, like in my family. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I want to go back to the idea of feedback as a creator. So you know, you put these stories out there, you're getting feedback and it kind of validates that you're kind of on the right path. Um, you also got an award to, you know, um, celebrating the series you created. Um, how did you feel about that award? Was that just like another uh, positive 
piece of feedback that kind of just validated what you were doing or um, like the icing on the cake or was it something more? I'm just curious, like what your sentiment around getting that award was and um, yeah, either one. You I, want I want Mandela to talk, talk about this. I one. want oh, Kirtana too. <laughs> <laughs> Come oh, on, do God. it, do it. Come uh, on. I, I think it was definitely not just validation. It was, it, you know what happens when you go to these award shows, they do a little snippet about your story, right? So here's, here's another audience. Here's another 20, 000, like 20 people, 30 people going to your story. Great. But, you know, I think it's typically in journalism, we do look at uh, awards as validation. Award season comes around. It's a big deal. We're all sweating, rushing. But I think what solidified to me was that this was something that was totally new. This was something that was so unique. Um, I think what was most important was our, our reaction from our senior producers and our execs who were just like jumping for joy. They were like, oh my God, what the heck? Not that they didn't believe in our project, but trust me, awards are great, okay? Everyone loves <laughs> awards. Um, but it was, that gave us a lot of strength. Um, I'll be honest, I mean, being a journalist of color is sometimes you're always, like this goes back to this idea of rejection. You're pitching stories that sometimes fit your bubble because you see the world in a bubble. You have a nuanced perspective on life. And sometimes those pitches don't work for the mainstream. Sometimes they don't work for the wider picture. Here's a series that probably didn't work for the wider picture, but it worked. And here's the validation to say, look what my work has created. Look what it has produced for you and award. That's a representation of the investment that our corporation has put into our work. That's great. Here is that for you. For us, it just solidified that this work was important. It is worthy of this recognition. And here we need to make more of it. Um, and that's what I think we gained the most out of that award. Yes, it looks great to write award-winning journalists. Trust me, I like made pamphlets. I told everybody, but... Um, at the same time, I think it just solidified to me, my, uh, our, our amazing colleagues, that just we need to invest in more journalism like this. We need to do more series-oriented ideas. We need to look at bigger picture and then break those down. Um, and we need to talk to communities we would never otherwise talk to. Um, that's what brought me the most excitement. Munchla, do you have anything to add? I just would like to echo everything. I think she captured <laughs> it beautifully. One thing before I go to the next question is, I should have asked this earlier, but you talked about getting rejected like kind of in the newsroom, but for those of us who are not, don't have that privilege or opportunity to be in that room with you guys, what is that like? Is it like you two pitching in front of like 20 people? And like, how do they decide? Is it like there's one person that's like the master, like the master decision maker? Or is it like you have to have a majority rules? Like, how does that work? I picture something like, you know, like when you're writing a TV show, something similar to that, but <laughs> Maybe not, I don't know. So you tell me. Yeah. It, it really depends. So it really depends on the pitch, right? So, you know, if you are pitching, so as an example, you know, you go in the morning and you pitch stories. You're all supposed to pitch stories in a newsroom meeting. That could be with six people. It could be with 10 people, right? Um, the You just really get used to pitching. Pitching is such a default thing we do now because you have to be ready. You pitch people in the elevator, you pitch people who are walking by, you know, in the kitchen. Um, of course, now it's all virtual. 
but the 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 other way that it could look is you it could be just you arranging a meeting with three or four people and pitching the idea and sometimes it's you looking doing individual pitches to sponsors sometimes it's like cold emailing or cold calling people if you're doing it outside of the organization that you're with right so it could have all of these formats but i would have to say that it helps if you're a good pitcher like if you're able to very briefly tell enough of the story that there's some tension there's some something in there that makes people go oh yeah like they're they're hearing it and they're going yeah that is relevant to something that's happening it's timely enough tension there's something in there that just grabs them and how sometimes you know it's a really good pitch is after you say it everyone breaks out into an argument about it for about 10 minutes right so the in the case in point someone's like well why can't interracial marriages be this well i don't know well this and then you're like i think i think i've said my piece because what 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 people have to understand with journalism is is i think that people walk around thinking journalism informs journalism informs certainly we do that but we're also here to make you think about things and if we can do that in that room we know we can create that in a larger audience right Jonathan, do you have anything to add on the the perfect pitch and how to do that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I also want to add another strategy for pitching. If uh, this is your crash course to pitching, folks, this is um, and and this kind of works for us too. I think you start with a focus. What's your focus of your story? What's the focus of what you want to do? You write your first. You write a headline. So, what does the headline of your start or your story look like? Here's the most important thing. You have two to three characters ready for your story. So when we did boldly Asian, we made sure that we had our focus. Like think pitch. Like pitch is not so far. Like if you come from the business world, like think bring some of those uh, those traits, that knowledge base, those skills to to you could bring them to journalism. That's a very transferable skill. Um, but having those characters or 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 guests or knowing who you're going to interview for this story. So interracial marriage. We we talk about three people who are inter in interracial marriages. Well, how do their narratives differ? what's the focus of the story why are we telling it here's the headline these things really help to build a pitch because it really helps inform your uh, your your team why why we're doing this but the most important thing i i sit in these early 9am meetings where everyone's half asleep but everyone's ready to fight and, and <laughs> sitting there and i'm like okay and then you're hearing for sometimes there's complete silence and that complete silence is not that people don't like your story i kid you it's it's bob in the back is probably falling asleep because he didn't have enough coffee this morning so but it's it's one of those things that i have tried to not take personally during the pitch meeting people are zoned out but what makes people zone in is exactly what mandela was saying was this idea of like grabbing them in making sure it's strong enough making sure people understand why they need to care if you can tell them why they need to care that often rates a really quick response maybe it's an argument maybe it's a conversation maybe that conversation takes 20 minutes but you know you've planted a seed and if your idea and your pitch can plant a seed it can often be very very successful that's very similar to business when you're pitching a product if if exactly. nobody is upset or like if they're not arguing about like what to do with your product that means and they have no questions it's an off, it's often a bad sign uh, that's what i've learned i thought no questions is great but it's not um but i guess just to clarify so you're pitching but how does the actual decision of go or no like like how, how do you know if a pitch turns into a story or something you can work on like how does that process work 
for, for I could just quickly say for us in our meetings, we need to get overwhelm, overwhelming majority in our meetings. Uh, there's usually about 20 people. And so if the majority of people like the idea or, uh, and we can try to discuss where the story can go, how it translates, then the story goes ahead. But everyone has a say, like they'll say, I don't think it's a good story. I don't think, if, if you're trying to hear quite a few notes, okay, we pass on it. We try to go go back and develop it or we drop the story. Um, again, remember, it's a very fast-paced industry too. So just always having a lot of pitches. Manjula, but you might have kind of a different subset. Yeah, because, because um, Kirtana works more on the news side. I work more on the current affairs side. So I would say that in, in current affairs, it tends to be more about six to eight people in the room. And what'll happen is everyone, you know, when I used to, when I used to be, um, I used to be an associate producer on the on the morning show at CBC. Everyone would come in with about three or four ideas, and then everyone would pitch them. And then when you pitch an idea, someone might might add on something to it, right? So you might pitch an idea to say, you know, I've just come across an international student who claims that there is an organization like an Indian restaurant in Brampton that owes her. Um, that offered to pay her, you know, under the table and now owes her eight months of, uh, you know, wages. And now she's almost ready to go out on the street because she comes from a poor family in the Punjab. That's the story. Then someone will go, oh, you know what? I know an organization. Someone will say, no, we've actually covered it this way. Or here's another angle. Why don't we bring in this charity to talk about it? And the idea grows, right? But what happens is that if you, you know, I used to pretty much be in there every day pitching three to four ideas. So you learn to handle rejection, no problems, right? In, in those meetings, what would happen is, you know, by the end of the meeting, if that story is going to fly or not, right? Mm -hmm. But I would say that, that, you know, that is a great way to rack up rejections. But I, I just generally think that is that it's kind of an interesting philosophy to maybe have, you know, one year where you think if you feel or a period in your life, if you think that things are a little bit stable, you don't have a lot of strange things going on in your life, you feel like there's a little bit of emotional stability, tell yourself that you're going to rack up rejections this year. That could be asking for more pay, could be asking to be, you know, included in the board of that organization, asking to um, that lovely person that you like for a date, whatever it is, right? Like you're just going to rack up a couple of like really amazing things that you want and, you know, maybe a, make a bid for that condo that you wanted. And in our case, it would be, oh, maybe we'll pitch another idea for a series. And if it doesn't make it, that's okay. Right. But, but do it at a time when you, it helps if you do it at a time when you feel like there's a little, if you're going to do that challenge of getting to 50, some people do uh, getting to a hundred, um, then that might be a way to approach it to make sure that you have a little bit of stability in your life. Great advice. Thank you guys for satisfying my personal curiosity. Uh, to get back to the Boldly Asian series, you talked about, you know, some of the impact and obviously winning the award. What does the future look like? I mean, you've done this series now, but obviously there's something there. What do you guys see as the future for this series? Or is there some kind of permutation that you guys, you know, have that you're thinking about? Oh, TBD, I would say, right, Kirtana? Yeah, definitely TBD. Uh, we're always looking for stories. We're always looking to tell people's stories. I think what was beautiful about Boldly Asian, the, these aren't stories, like Angela said, like you'd find. So we're always, we're, we're keeping our eye out for more of these stories that we can develop into something. Um, I think we're still coming off of 
all of the work that we've done last year. And, but it's TBD for sure. I think we're just waiting for more stories to pile in so we can keep the, keep the series going. Yeah, we would love to hear more. If there are people out there that, that, that think that they have something to say, a story of this kind, please, we'd love to hear from you. Um, because we hope that at some point we can we can continue this. I mean, it's a crazy year for the news cycle. You know that, um, Era, right? And uh, but at some point we'd love to keep keep doing more of it. Okay. Well, the next topic I want to talk about is social media. Always a hot topic, uh, especially for folks that are in journalism. And I don't know. How, I know some people that have very strong opinions about it, but I look at social media as almost like a new media tool, right? It gives access to more people to express their views, whether it's good or bad or informed or not, but just to kind of let more people speak their mind. Um, do you see, like, I, I guess, how, number one, how do you see, like, how do you, what's your opinion on this? And number two, like, are there any trends similar to this that you see, you know, going to the future in this, you know, what they call the golden era, golden era of creators? So either one of you can jump on it. Did you know that every time you left a 5 out of 5 review for this podcast, a Tamil parent lets their child pursue a career in the creative arts? Okay, that's probably not true. But if there's a chance that it is, do you really want to jinx it? Leave a review. Do it for the young creative in you. Social media and I have a very interesting relationship. I think recently, I'm just, it's, uh, so I actually, a couple of years ago, deleted my Facebook and Instagram and uh, Twitter. I deleted everything. Um, this was while being a journalist and trust me, it was very hard, but I was a roving reporter at the time. So I was in smaller stations. So I could pick up the phone, call people if I needed to get a story. I was in the middle of nowhere. I was driving on ice roads. So it was, it was much easier to not have social media at that time. Um, but I think now, uh, social media, this kind of relationship, I think as a journalist and social media has become one of now I use Twitter, but it's become one of almost exhaustion. I find at a time where I would post about our stories and really let that narrative kind of juice and flow and, and move, now it's become a lot, and, and I'll be frank and honest here, a lot about defending journalism or kind of justifying journalism. Um, I think people's perception of media has changed, um, and it's making it a little harder because it makes it so that you're struggling to you're struggling to sort of you're struggling to sort of defend your career like you're struggling to tell people that I'm here I'm a person behind the story um and and this is everything that I do is valid and so sometimes journalism has uh, social media transitioned from being this place of like let's communicate our stories let's have discussions to a place of like defense and I and and a wall like this tweet stands as its own statement or this piece stands as its own part and it sometimes becomes exhausting I'm finding a lot of journalists turning like making it a very conscious attempt to turn off their social media um and I I'm definitely one of those I'll be I'll go a couple of days without Twitter uh I'll try to just disassociate um completely and I it makes it makes me feel freer but it makes me a better journalist I think by taking yourself away from media, you're really taking yourself away from narratives around media. You're keeping yourself sane for your actual job and the work and the accountability that you do. Um, 
which is what I want to do. I, I want to hold people accountable. I want to be speak truth to power. I want to tell stories that are untold. I don't want to get caught up in the narratives that make me exhausted uh, or make me think about why I'm exhausted as a journalist. So anyways, that's my personal experience with social media. I don't mean to make it a downer, but I, I think it's important to be real about um, kind of all the facets of how what it offers to people as journalists, but also what it does to us as well. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting that that, you know, when, you know, when I was thinking, I, I actually had to think really deeply about if we are creators, because because I, I still I don't think I've reached a decision on that. If we are creators, because I see the, the people that I can think of that are creators have decided that here's the objective for what I need to do. Here's how I'm going to be compensated for it. And here are the mediums I'm going to use to get there. That's not what we do, right? In, in a way. So I, I think I still have to have to decide if we fall into that realm. But I, I, I you know, I, I second everything that Kirtana has said about, about how it can be exhausting. Um, so I'll, I'll say, my goodness, I agree with all of that and more. Um, and I do think that that you, like I try now consciously to take a day off on the weekends. I know that a lot of my colleagues do as well, where they actually turn things off completely. Um, but on the other side of things, I also find that it is an interesting place to find opinions and voices because in a way, it democratizes the ability to speak. Like it, it gives you that, that, um, that soapbox to sit on, right? The problem with the soapbox, I think, is not just, not just when it comes to, to social media, but just even across the web is, is who owns the purse to who distributes, is, distributes it and who has editorial content. Right. And that, I think, is a is a concern. And then so eventually it becomes a little bit of everyone has their own facts. Everyone has their own filter bubble and they are choosing to live within that bubble. And whoever has the right resources, has the right team sitting in some office in the middle of nowhere and can tweak the algorithms to work better for them, can get that particular um, version of facts out there. And I think that is a concern, right? We're seeing that, um, that work out in so many different realms. I mean, um, you know, there's been conversations about how that might be happening with um, international conflicts, with uh, thinking around the vaccines, all those areas. So I think there is a, a larger concern um, around that. But I will just say one little line as a technology columnist that I that I find interesting because you asked for what the future vision would be. I think everyone thinks about how are we going to disrupt media? But what 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 really needs to be thought out is how are we going to disrupt the business model for media? So I'm going to show you something I got a, a people who are listening may not be able to see this, but Someone in the house bought an antique item secondhand. We're really into buying secondhand. And it came wrapped in a newspaper. And it ended up being, Kirtana, you're going to love this, 1957 London Free Press. That's what it was wrapped in. 
our, our weird selves would just frame that. <laughs> it's so like I, I've stacked it. So I've got it all stacked here and it's 1957 and there are ads like it's so noticeable. There are tons of ads in here. But if you compare it to my Globe and Mail that I receive, there's like practically there's almost no ads in the Globe and Mail. Well, who's paying for this stuff? Right. And you brought up the idea of Substack. I mean, Substack has come up with this method of having having people individually pay. You want to get someone, the next chapter of Salman Rushdie's novel, you get it on Substack, you have to pay, you have to subscribe to it. So, so I do think that, that we are going to see people come up with different and clever ways to address the issue of the business model. But I think that we do have to remember, um, you know, think about this idea of editorial control and think about this idea of having an authority that that actually curates the news for you so that era you're not just listening to mining news kirtana isn't just listening to technology news and i'm just not listening to news about the raptors that i'm getting a little bit of everything and staying informed and it's passing through this massive editorial process i'm sorry i took up so much time with that but i had to get that across because it is something that i think that i think a lot of people um, think about not just journalists right I'm just wondering why I got the mining news and not the Raptors. But... I don't know. I, I'm sorry. You, you. Do I look like someone that reads about mining? But okay. <laughs> uh... I, I wanted to. I wanted to quickly add something to Manjula. It's also, I think, what you have to look at the future of who is going to be a journalist too, because what journalists used to be is and how you became a, it. Has it has changed? Uh, there is a media organization called the Conversation Canada, which has uh, academics writing kind of like news articles. They're writing their research like a news article. Um, are they a journalist or are they an academic? So when you're thinking about the future of media, you're thinking about what method does media take in the future? You also have to ask yourself who is a journalist and who is characterized as a journalist? What mediums are considered journalists? I want to put that thought out there. Yeah, and, and just as a side note, the conversation is actually a great place to read up on on different sort of the work of academics, right? And they do have, you know, an editorial team and everything. But I agree, Kirtana, like that is a really interesting format too. Yeah, no, I had a few thoughts as I heard you guys speak about social media as well, where um, my viewpoint on social media is it's kind of like a tool, like driving a car. I feel like I'm in that, I think we're all part of that weird group that knew what the world looked like before social media and like learned to live with it. But this new generation of like, like I look at younger people, all they know is social media. And I feel like they need to be better trained in how to consume that information because it could be very unhealthy. Like I look at social media as a place to kind of get inspired. Like you, I think Manjula, both of you mentioned like to find inspiration, but I also find it could be a potential time suck. It's almost like I start to eat a bag of chips and that's what social media is. I'm like, I want to look for inspiration. I'm going to have a couple of bites. And within an hour, I've ate the whole bag of chips and I'm like, what happened? And that's what social media is. Like, I think I'm doing using it responsibly, but it just built in a certain way. The people that build it, design it, know how to build it so that even people that are like us that are aware still end up using it more than we want to. And I think that's why I've heard of this concept called the tech Sabbath. A bit more is kind of borrowed from uh, Christian practice of the Sabbath, but like tech Sabbath. And I think um, there's an author, I heard his name, Neil something, uh, Book of Awesome. He, I think he does this. And it's just like crazy how your brain gets rewired from that one day of just stepping away from technology. Um, so that's interesting. Another quick thing I'll mention is, you know, I think you were talked about the future of creators or like who's paying for the content. And I think The Athletic, 
they were touted like when they started as okay it's, it's going to be great content there's gonna be no advertising only subscribers pay for it and i think the ceo at some point said hey we're going to like keep doing this until we're going to wait for all the traditional media companies like the new york times etc just to die out and i think just like two three weeks ago the new york times actually bought the athletic which i thought was funny so i don't know if i, I thought the athletic could work and it, it had a great kind of idea or like potential but um that kind of leads to the next question i had which is you know i've noticed more and more journalists with large enough followings leaving big incumbents because i was listening to your process of you know i think my my personality is if i have an idea i want to do it uh, i don't want someone to tell me if i can do it or not i'll figure out a way to do it but i realize it's not a possibility but i've noticed more journalists leaving big companies like the new york times toronto star etc to either be independent or or join more nimble organizations and substack is one tool ghost and like a bunch of other things they do i think there's a a guy who covers the MMA, um, he started independent, then he worked for ESPN, then he went back, I forgot his name. Um, so at CBC or like just like people you interact with, do you see this trend continuing of this talent of, you know, good journalists with big followings that have great ideas, uh, leaving places like the CBC, the Toronto Star to join Substack or just do other things that are, or even like leave altogether and do um, work for corporate, like be do marketing or um, communications for like a big tech company. So, what are your thoughts around that? I said a lot, so just I no, no, that's okay. Go do ahead. you want to go, Kitten? I'll I'll give it a step. The it's interesting because I think that um, in every profession you have people that you know you have people that that belong to large uh, accounting consulting firms or, or consulting firms period that decide then, oh, I'm going to go just do my work for one client or I'm going to form something and do it independently, right? I, I think that there will always be people making decisions. I, I don't think that there is, um, I mean, certainly we've had some really, really, um, you know, You've heard of people starting really large podcasts. You've heard of people um, starting massive newsletters. But I think that there will always be a stream of people in any profession that decide that they want to, to move on and do different things, maybe focus in on an area. And some of that stuff is, is incredibly innovative. I mean, you mentioned the logic um, that focuses in on technology and does a fantastic, they've actually broken some really large stories, technology stories in, in Canada. So, the, you know, there was a gap, they identified it and they're doing great work, much needed work, right? So, so I think that there will always be that. You also have to remember that, that this is a profession where when it comes to employment, there is a lot of incredibly smart um, uh, supply more than demand. So when, when that exists, people always look for, for other things that they can do. So I don't, I, I mean, because of some large departures, people may think that it's a trend. I think it's part of it has always been there. I, I also want to add, like we are in the pandemic and it's never been a more exhausting time to be a journalist in, in, in a big city, um, like in Toronto. It's, it's not because of journal, it could, it's maybe not because of journalism, but it's because of the 
the work that you're putting, you're watching press conferences every day, you're following everything. It's, it's exhausting. Um, I can speak as someone who has worked in a bit, like I started in Toronto, I chose to go to Sudbury, like, and, and someone would say, you had a gig here, why did you leave? Like I was working with the investigative, national investigative unit. I had a sweet gig as a national investigative unit and left that to be a reporter in Sudbury. I had a couple of people say, what the heck is wrong with you? Like you literally got the prime gig. Um, I did that because I needed to have the experience for my personal growth. That's where I had an appreciation for what, what people value in small communities. I got to uh, work with Indigenous communities. That's the first time I remember standing at the corner in Sudbury and at, at all three of the corners, three people uh, were lying on the ground because of an overdose. And at the same time, three ambulances came to all three intersections and were trying to revive them. I never would have seen that. And I, actually that was in Thunder Bay, but that was in Thunder Bay. But I remember I never would have seen that if I was in Toronto. I am uh, blinded by the tall buildings and my union station and going around the corner and my pathways and my cars. I don't need to see that. When I'm working in these small towns, do I have, and I, and I hate to call them small towns because I don't want to diminish the work that they do. These are just smaller regions. But people leave, I think, one, because they want personal growth. Two, because they need to get out of their heads. I think I needed to leave to get out of my head. I had a, I could have been an investigative journalist. I loved it. It was a great gig. I was working on a huge national investigation. and But I couldn't feel as satisfied as the time I was in Thunder Bay and my boss said, hey, there's a new crosswalk opening. Uh, could you go do that story? I was like, why the heck am I doing a story about a crosswalk? He said, come in here. And he said, this intersection has had a couple of accidents. There was a couple of kids involved. This crosswalk means so much to them. And that's when I realized, who am I with my privileged Toronto perspective to come in here and devalue Money can be hard to come by, crosswalk. but here's a hundred dollar opportunity are, for you. Join my free newsletter for free exclusive content and a free chance to win $100 when I hold special draws. Did I mention that it's free? They get to do bigger stories. They have their creative freedom. Sometimes we're confined to the six o'clock deadline. You know, I'm filing. I'm I'm wearing a blanket over my head trying to voice my item to make sure it gets on TV. Uh, Do I need to do that? Or can I look into, you know, something that's happening at a school in a small part of northeastern Ontario that I get two or three days to really develop that story and what impact that has. Um, I remember when I was in Thunder Bay, I did this incredible story about they sang uh, the national, they translated the national anthem into Ojibwe. And I spoke to this kid, uh, I remember his name, his name was Josh, and, and he, was, uh, he was in grade 11. I said, what does this mean to you to do this? He said, my grandmother never got to do this, so I'm going to do it for her. Mm. And I, I sat there and I was like, okay, wow, like I wouldn't have got that narrative sitting in my newsroom in Toronto because I'm clouded by, by this camera goes here, this camera goes here. Um, so anytime a new journalist comes in, I always say, go. You want to stay here, stay here. Don't worry. But if you can go, go. Go oh, now. Go I when agree. you can. Get out. Go. You are fine. You can be away from your family for two months. Ramen noodles taste just as good. <laughs> like, just leave. And... Um, I actually have, I know an incredible journalist. I encouraged her to go. She actually got a job in Calgary. She's a video journalist now. She started with us uh, in Toronto, but I said, you have so much potential and she's thriving. And I'm so proud of her. Um, 
But I, I want to put this attention on, I, I think, yes, I think you see people leaving and having these big departures, but I think there's so much value in, in, in your personality and the way you think about, as, think of yourself as a journalist to what you offer to the table and what people give you when you start to depart and leave from, from your cushy mainstream sort of subject. The other thing, too, is I think that, you know, when I look at uh, the people in the CBC newsroom, I mean, my goodness, there are a ton of people that are super savvy, right? You, you, Kirtana, you can say that, too. Like, we work with some really smart people that have a va- uh, also a range of other hobbies. Like, Kirtana is, you know, a, a fully trained Bharatanatyam dancer. There's someone over there who sings opera, someone over here, you know, who's a jazz musician. Like, people are capable of all these very interesting things and also knowledgeable about city and provincial and Canadian affairs. But, you know, one thing I would say is that they're also really great storytellers. They can work to a deadline. They are hardworking. How could that not be? So I could understand that at some point someone goes, want to come work for me? And and it becomes appealing to go, oh, I'm going to like I tried. I went from from doing something that I loved that I was, you know, pretty good at to this. So similarly, people could go what are you doing switching to journalism? It's the same thing. At some point you think, oh, I think I, I want to change. But that that idea that you are hardworking, capable of working deadlines, and you can you can put together this wonderful narrative is, is, a, is an amazing skill for a ton of things. Right. Um, I really like that story you talked about, Kirtana, the one with Josh. I feel like if I was, if he told that to me, I would have cried on the spot. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was the power to not yeah. cry. He was the most eloquent, great 11 student. I actually saw him at a power the week after and I was going to go up to hug him. And my boss was like, that's weird. I was like, okay, <laughs> I will do it. <laughs> um, I would love to get both of your perspectives on, so you're going to get into a time machine and visit your 16 year old selves. What would you tell them? I tell them don't listen to Amma. <laughs> go to do journalism. <laughs> You're not gonna die. <laughs> no, but seriously, I think literally my amma sitting there and she's like, "You're going to. They're gonna kill you." I was like, "Who?" They're like, "They, they, they, they will kill you." Um, but seriously, I, I, I would just tell myself that. Um, I think one thing I struggled with when I was a kid was I didn't trust myself, and I didn't trust my talent be a journalist I didn't think I I could do it I didn't think I had a skill I didn't think, I think I thought I had to do something to do that I I and I let I let you know some of that clouded judgment from my mother and my own self-doubt really uh really set in but I think if I could go back to my 16 year old self I would tell myself um you're smarter than you think because you're curious use that curiosity and like really capitalize on that because I thought had I become a journalist early on I think I would have spent a lot more time traveling. I would have spent a lot more time elsewhere. Um, I love the trajectory of my life. I would never, I wouldn't change it the way that it went, but I'd want myself to know. I want myself to trust their curiosity. You're at Manjula. Oh my, this is a very tough question um, in terms of advice, because I feel the same way that I, that I like the trajectory of my life is uh, taken. So the funny thing is the advice <laughs> offering is actually the opposite of the trajectory that my life has taken. Um, I would probably say to, to, to that 16 year old to take it easy a little. You've got a lot of time. There's a lot of time when you're 16. 
Um, I would say that as you get older and you approach your 20s, start to hone in on one thing and know that that one thing um, comes with a lot of massive ups and downs, but eventually it'll, it'll settle. But um, I had a conversation recently with someone about, about really um, focusing in on one thing and finding your edge. And I would say that that's, that's what I would tell, maybe not the 16-year-old, because I want the 16-year-old to explore a little, but I would tell the 20-year-old to say, like, take it easy, but focus in on something that, that, that is a combination of a bit of your interests, but a bit of what you're great at, and then hone in on that. And that'll be the thing that every couple of years you'll get better at, and uh, will work out for you, will become one day um, far more enjoyable, far more easier to do, and pay back in so many ways. Good advice. And now we're looking forward. So in terms of personal legacy, how would you both want to be remembered by your friends and family? That's a difficult question. My goodness. Um, I got to think about that a little. Kirtana, you got something that surfaces? <laughs> I don't. I actually don't know how I want. I, I mean, I think, I think I'm privileged to say that I have, being a journalist, uh, allows me to leave a legacy. My name is in print. My name, you can Google me and I have, you know, tons of Google hits that pop up. That, that's a legacy. That's, that's a traditional form of legacy. Um, I think for, I mean, not even just as a journalist, like I am a Brazilian dancer. I'm going to do my Edengetan, which is like your final graduation for dance. That's part of my legacy too. My mom never got to do her Edengetan because she was living in Sri Lanka at the time. My legacy for my family is doing my Erangetam so that they could say someone in our family did finished, finished our Tamil art form and completed it. And here is my daughter who was able to do what I couldn't do. That is part of my legacy. As a journalist, I think in many ways, my legacy is the stories that I do, ensuring that I have done stories that make people feel represented, um, make people feel feel like they have been heard that that uh, that me telling their story made them feel like they can open up they don't have to hold back they don't have to feel like they need to be sensitive about it I I hope that's the legacy I leave with people and I hope my parents remember that I know my parents didn't understand their journalism when I got into it um I think it was later on that my dad took a lot of pride uh it's funny like people my dad would say oh I you know my daughter works for CBC and they were like, oh, I love CIBC. I bank with them too. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I was like, why would you bank with? And then my dad's like, no, CBC. He's like, what? The, the red logo, the red logo. And I'm like, oh my God, okay. This is like, this is embarrassing. <laughs> but, you know, now I think it's, it's, it's come into more of a mainstream, but it was a hard conversation. Um, but I think the legacy comes with the stories that I get to share Um you know, I get to do a story about Madi Danal a few years ago, and I'm so proud of that story. Um, it was hard because I remember my mom was in Sri Lanka at the time, and I couldn't share the story with her because of a little bit of tension. But um, doing that story about Madi Danal, I got everyone in my newsroom to say Mavirus, Mavirus, and it was so interesting because I was like, oh my God, okay, this is so weird. Uh, but those little bits, I think, are my legacy, that I got to bring a bit of my natural, authentic self to my newsroom. And in the same way, my parents get to say, um, you know, a part of our, who we are lives lives in this visceral universe. I think those are kind of ways. 
You ready, Manjula? Yeah. Uh, so it's it's interesting. I, I I have a couple of thoughts on this. Um, I don't know if I am wed. Like I, it's not. I don't want to say that I don't care, but it's not that I I I don't feel this pressure or the sense that I want people walking around remembering who I am. I just don't think it happens to anyone, right? There's just too much content, too many people, frankly, right? But there are a couple of things that I would like to leave in my wake. Let's put it that way, right? Uh, one thing is to um, raise a child that has, um, uh, you know, is socially conscious. That's really important for me. Um, that's one very powerful thing that that motivates me. The the second thing that um, that I would really like to to, I think it's I'm actually starting to almost like move into that phase of my life, uh, thinking about what I'm going to leave in my wake is to have, um, you know, other women, younger women, um, have a little bit of an easier path than I may have had in certain areas, right? And, and it's something that I came to me in the middle of the Me Too movement about three or four years ago. And I thought, well, what have I done? I've done nothing. And, and, and that's where Tamil Women Rising came about in the middle of the Me Too movement. This, like, I am doing nothing. What have I done uh, for other women? You know, I've just gone on and really just thought about myself. I had this like three or four nights where this is all I thought about. And then basically called a whole, whole bunch of people and, and they said, well, we're going to come on with you. And we started this. And even though we're still trying to figure out how to do it right, I think that, that I want to, over the next couple of years, spend some time um, figuring out a way to, to create systems that'll make the path easier for other women to be successful. So it's not a matter of a legacy, but at least it's a better wake and a better path than what I found. Um, and I think especially for women of color and including Tamil women, obviously. I, I just want to add here quickly that Manjula does this all the time. Like she, she is such, she is someone that honestly, truly, I, I don't care if she could laugh, she could, she could be like, oh my God, don't say this, I'll say it anyways. She honestly does step up for so many people. She will do, I think like the time, like this woman, I don't know if you guys actually understand this, but like she does so much, like she's actually, in so many different circles like she takes on so many beautiful tasks and she's very well known in her circles but the time she takes for people is is crazy like the time she'll take out of her day just to hear me just go blah or the time she'll take to push someone else forward or really ensure that they get the better understanding she really puts things into perspective she really always helps people put things into perspective she's like one of the most like okay like, i have to stop you stop stop <laughs> you can't see i will i'll end on this i will end on this you must always find someone who motivates you who helps you be the best version of yourself and i think manjula has does that with me and i know she does that with other women i've seen her at a time of woman rising event and i think that is a that is a legacy that, that carries because of the impact you've had on other people's lives i think that in and of itself is a legacy so i'm going to uh, tell something here astoria right um that I think kind of talks about what Tamil women do for each other, because I think sometimes we're this silent network that women, the people don't know exists, right? That temple story that, that Kirtana mentioned. Um, the reason I pitched the story is because 
there was a Tamil woman who found out about it, who had all the contacts that she had within the CBC, but decided to call me, and I'm not going to reveal her name because I I don't have the, the permission to, but called me and said, not only do I trust you because you're a Tamil journalist, but I'm hoping that by you pitching the story, it'll further your career. So even though she had more direct, more well-known journalists that were not Tamil she could have taken the story to, she was like, who's the first Tamil journalist? I'm going to use this as a way to further your career. And what people don't know about the Tamil community is they find Tamil journalists and they will find ways to gently push your career forward. And Tamil women are notoriously great at doing this for each other, right? So it's just, um, I think in a way, I feel like I have to kind of put my time in now doing that, right? So hopefully over the next decade. (laughs) I think you're on your way based on Kirtana's uh, testimony. (laughs) And I think that's a beautiful way to kind of segue into the final segment of the podcast. It's, It's a fun speed round, I like to call it creator confessions. I'm going to say a bunch of statements and you're going to say the first thing that pops to mind. And just for consistency's sake, we'll always start with Kirtana and then Manjula, just so people know who's responding. So you guys ready? Okay. All right. Favorite Tamil food? Kotoroti. Appam. Something that scares you? Horror films. All scary movies, every single one of them. Insecurity that you have? Uh, the way I look. Yeah, actually the way I look too. <laughs> Favorite show you're watching? Arthur. <laughs> Binge watching Arthur. <laughs> I love that show. That's a good. <laughs> Where do I start? I have so many on the go. Um, Gosh, binge watch, binge watch. What are we watching now? Oh, a superstore. A place you're itching to travel to after this pandemic is over, managed, whatever you want to call it. Morocco. Spain. Favorite childhood memory? Oh, oh my God. I don't know. Um, favorite childhood memory? Favorite childhood memory? Oh my God, is that sad? I don't have one. Um, no, okay. I think it's probably um, my parents took me to a water park for my birthday. That was a fun memory. For it would me, for me, it would be my parents told me that they hate they hate pets inside the house, but they told me that if I studied hard enough, I could get a kitten, and then they didn't come through for ages. And then one day, they just showed up with a kitten. And, and agree to live with a kitten inside our house, which they both hate. So for me, that is like the best gift that I could have ever received. And uh, it's just was such a big moment in my life. I can't even tell you. But yes, that is my finest moment as a child. Uh, something you like to do for fun outside of work? Uh, cook. I love to cook. Yeah, Tamil same food. here. I love cooking. This is why we get along. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> a favorite movie of all time? A Tamil or English? Okay. Uh, Either. <laughs> uh, Tamil movie, Chandra Muki. <laughs> English movie um, is uh, Eddie, Harry Potter uh, and the Prisoner of Azkaban. 
I'm not going to go for a movie. I'm going to instead say a series because I practically watch it every year. It's Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I've watched it more times than I should actually probably say. Yeah. <laughs> it's a BBC series, the, the original BBC series. Yeah. Oh, okay. A purchase you've made that you've splurged on in the last couple of years that you have zero regret about? <laughs> My rent? <laughs> my the roof over my head <laughs> yeah, zero regret oh my gosh that I have zero regret I have a ton of regrets what are you talking about um essentially a guilt-free large purchase or a significant purchase that you have no guilt about or could and it could be a moment or yeah, an experience it could, be, it could be anything yeah. uh yeah we um we went on a trip uh, to Italy with a, with a bunch of friends and it was pricey and it was, we rented a place together, a villa together. I didn't even know that I would do this at one point in my life, but I can be completely pretentious and say we did. And it was amazing because I, I got to spend some really quality time with my friends. And one of those friends then ended up actually uh, moving away to London. So it's kind of this massive memory, but it was such an amazing experience, just the time together and the country so beautiful. And you forget how historical, like the amount of history in Italy too, but I would say that was a splurge well worth it. Pet peeve. Oh, um, pet peeve. Pet- yeah, pet peeve. I'm trying to think. I, I actually have so many that I'm trying to nail down. <laughs> um, <laughs> pet peeve is people that are not kind. I, I, I really value kindness, but people who want to have an attitude or want to bring an attitude to the table, I, I hate people who are not kind. It's one of my biggest pet peeves. Oh my God, I have so many too. I mean, some of them are as small as like when you don't have winter tires. I can't stand that. <laughs> don't talk to my dad. <laughs> I would say... Um, Pet peeves, um, people who anger easily, I think. People who, who, who like they don't kind of wait to listen and kind of hear the, I can't, and I've been noticing sometimes I notice people and I know that everyone's under a lot of stress and I notice that happening in the pandemic sometimes um, at places, at malls and stores. And I just, I can't stand it. And I have to actually, not get angry as fast enough with them either, right? But I just, I, I've always not really liked people who get angry very fast. If you were going to die tomorrow, a regret that you would have? That I never got to send my parents on um, uh, a Canada-wide train trip. That's my, that's my number one goal in my life. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't really thought that one out. That's such a massive question. Huh? These are supposed to be like, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? <laughs> and I think you know the answer, but you're, <laughs> you're, you're overthinking it. I think, you know over- the um, I think it would be a whole bunch of regrets around my daughter. Yeah, I can't, I can't pinpoint on it because the only uh, thing that emerges, my poor other half doesn't make it into the picture I care about him too but it's just like it's all kind of taken over with everything about my daughter that I can't pinpoint one thing but everything about like what I could have done with her what I should have done with her what I everything so a a celebrity or just a person that you would be interested in living or experiencing what they go through for one day 
Ooh, that is a good one. Um, hmm. Kamala Harris, definitely. I don't know why I thought of that for so long. Kamala yeah. Harris, for sure. Yeah. Kamala Harris would be a good one. I can't think of anyone that I would want to live for a day. Ah, uh, Angela Merkel, maybe. I don't know. It would have to be a politician, I think. Oh, yeah. She's uh, a baddie. She's awesome. Yeah, she's, I, I would think Merkel or who else? Um, yeah, someone I think who does like an insane amount in a day and I just don't get, oh, you know who would be really great too? Um, the guy who wrote Sapiens, um, the author. Oh, um, yeah, I forget his name. Uh, Yuval um, Harari, I think. I just once heard an interview with him and he just sounds like a real fascinating person. I think I think he would be someone I would just want to know what he sort of how he goes about his day and how he comes up with these sort of massive ideas. Um, a book or podcast that you've consumed in the last year or two that's had an impact on you? Uh, actually, ironically, The Boat People, a huge impact oh. on me and uh, really really I think sparked a, a sparked a, a light in me to really reappreciate my culture have you interviewed her yet Ara? Sharon yes I did she was three or four episodes ago oh fantastic okay I've yeah. got to make a point of listening to that I think she's fascinating um book is the um I think it's called empire of pain I just read it it's about um the opioid crisis and the pharmaceutical and sort of the the everything that brought it about and the tie to sort of pharmaceutical companies. It's it's such a it's beautifully written. It's written by a journalist. It's now an award-winning book, but it is absolutely shocking. And to a certain extent, you read it and it speaks to um, so much. There's just there's so many failings in the in uh, in regulatory bodies and in the justice system. There's so many things that, that it's really, I would highly recommend this read as just a, um, I, I think people need to be aware of, of where things are with, with the opioid crisis and also how much it's costing us, right? But it's a beautifully, beautifully written book too. A belief, behavior, or habit that has improved your life. Uh, right after you shower and put on your clothes, taking five minutes to sit on your bread, bed and breathe, and then you start your day. That's changed my life. Seven to eight hours of sleep. And finally, like, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, seven to eight hours. Time. I'm telling you the way your brain works after, if you can do it. I know you have young kids, Sarah, so you can't get to that yet, but one day. It's incredible. <laughs> Uh, and finally, a piece of advice that you guys would give to your fellow aspiring Tamil creators out there. Uh, I know, Kirtan, I kind of touched on this with advice, but maybe specifically around, you know, um, especially if you're doing something that's unorthodox or where it's not really something where you can get predictable income, um, how do you plan finances to be able to do that thing? Um, so maybe that, but that was just kind of a suggestion, but whatever you think somebody listening to this could use that word of encouragement or advice. Uh, your parents love you, but your parents aren't always right 
uh, you're sometimes we grow up conditioned to believe that their say is go, but they haven't seen the world that we live in. And uh, one day they'll understand that. So keep what, doing what you want to do, um, but bring them along for the ride. So they understand every step of the way so that they don't feel like that success wasn't also there. Uh, I think that's something that I've, I've tried to bring my parents along for the ride with my successes. So I, I can remind them every single moment that every yes you gave me is what brought me to this point. Love that. You have to remind me of the question. I got so absorbed in Kirtana's yeah, answer. That was, answer Kirtana, yeah. that was a great answer. Oh my gosh. That was so moving. Okay. Or what was the question? Oh, again? sorry. Just like a piece of advice that you would give an inspiring, you know, Tamil creator out there. Just something that might encourage them or yeah. I would say um, grow really tough skin. Uh, because when you um, when you are someone that puts out things. Um, whether you're doing it for a large organization um, or you're doing it independently, you're going to hear all sorts of things, comments back at you. You're also going to have a lot of highs and a lot of lows. So, so work on growing your thick skin because if you're going to do it for two years and you're, it'll help you stick to doing it consistently because doing it consistently um, is what gets you there right? Riding through the thicks and thins, you know, the ups and downs. And the downs are sometimes driven by, by people giving you either not caring about your work or giving you, you know, terrible advice when they shouldn't or just, you know, bad feedback. So you want to make sure that you ride through those things. Great. No, that was awesome. Well, that's the end of the podcast, guys. That was amazing. Uh, both of you guys had amazing answers and Kirtana, talk about like, you know, ending off things with a bang. That was a great answer. Uh, for people listening that like listen to this and were inspired or want to connect with you guys, what's the best way for them to reach out? Uh, definitely Twitter. My uh, DMs are open. I'm always, love, I love chatting with people or LinkedIn. I'm kind of old school. I like my LinkedIn. Same thing here, uh, either LinkedIn uh, or Twitter. Awesome. Well, thank you both again for jumping on and making time uh, and being part of my pilot project of have, dealing with multiple guests. I appreciate it. And uh, for those of you listening, as always, appreciate it and uh, look forward to the next episode.